Rabbi Tatz's uh, reputation precedes him. He doesn't need my introduction, but I can't pass up the opportunity since my relationship with Rabbi Tatz goes back decades, I believe, even before he moved to England. We met, we're, uh, I would say, he is one of Rabbi Moshe Shapiro Zatzal's closest Talmidim. I was a Talmid. We met um, through Rabbi Moshe Shapiro. And um, we hit it off because we see most things very, very similar. Um, I'm holding here an article that Rabbi Tax sent me. I don't think it was ever published, but it should have been. Tshuva and the Sacrifice of the Intellect. Um, and uh, you know, paradoxically, many intelligent Bali Tshuva experience a disconcerting sense of dulling of thought and relative intellectual sterility during the process of coming to grips with Torah. The only other person I ever heard such deep thoughts about was from one of my mentors, Rabbi Nachman Bullman, who said that we have to realize the challenge of Balchuva has. Everything he thought was true. He wakes up one morning and finds out it's not true. And everything he thought is not true, he wakes up and finds it's true. Rabbi Tatz has been, had to dealt with that. Rabbi Tatz is a Balchuva himself, but in the early years when it was really an intellectual process. I'll just add one other note of introduction because I said we agree on most things. The topic of today's shir is the one thing we have disagreed upon. We had a machlokas about Hashem's uh, infinite knowledge and our free will. I don't think we ever settled it, um, but it's always wonderful to hear Rabbi Tatz and how he's going to deal with it. I'm sure that over the years the thoughts always evolve, and I'm looking forward to hearing how Rabbi Tatz disagrees with me today. <laughs> Can the women hear well? Is the mic is it? Is mic's working? Okay. Thank you very much for that introduction, and thank you for the opportunity to um, to learn with you and uh, once again teach you how to speak English. Um, there are indeed two very difficult areas when it comes to free will. <clears throat> the whole subject is mysterious and wonderful. <clears throat> and it's one of the main subjects that Rav Moshe Shavir taught us in, ma- in many ways, based on what we call the Das, which is a deep type of a knowledge or experiential knowledge. But in this area of free will, there are two classically difficult areas. One is very well known, and that is the question of how God, Hashem, can know in advance what we will do, and yet we are free. That's one very difficult area. And the other, perhaps almost as difficult, is how one person's free will affects others. And that's the one I'd like to speak about today. I must warn you, it's a distressing subject. First of all, it's a scary subject. And secondly, it's also distressing because what I'd like to suggest to you is that most people misunderstand the subject. And um, you'll probably get a lot of opposition and quite vehement opposition if you try to present this side of the subject. But I think this is the correct one. And I'm, I'm standing on the shoulders, again, of our great teacher, of Moshe Shapira, and so I'd like to tell you what he said about it. Is that okay? Can the ladies hear? Um, let me... What time do we need to finish? Is there? Let's begin like this. The problem we want to deal with is how my free will can impinge on you when that's against your correct dispensation, what we call Hashgotha. So that's the problem. That's what we're speaking about, right? The, the, we're not speaking about you, dear today. Right? I say, okay, so then maybe we do agree on what you're saying. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's the problem. I have free will. That's an axiom in Torah. The whole Torah is based on the fact that I, can, I have free will. My free will allows me to do things that Hashem does not want. I can do what He does not want. That's clear, right? He doesn't want me to break Shabbos. I can do that. So my free will is powerful enough to enable me to do things that Hashem does not want. Okay. That's basic in Torah, and it's the basis of all responsibility. The problem is, when I do something that uses my free will that affects me, that's cool. If I play in the traffic, or do something dangerous and get hurt, then that's appropriate. But what happens when I use my free will to affect you, and I try to do something to you that is not fair from your in other words, you are walking through the world with Hashem interacting with your life. We call that Hanhaga, Hashkocha. Hashem is interacting with you. That's called divine providence. Whatever English word you want to use, He's giving you what is a correct dispensation for you, what you deserve, what you need. 
either more openly, less openly, that's a wonderful discussion in its own right, but we surely believe that you're not abandoned to random, random chance. Yeah, clear? Okay. What happens when I try to do something to you that's not in line with what Hashem intends to happen to you? Now, in order to clarify what we're talking about, we're not talking about what Hashem knows in advance. That's off-limits. That you can never, that's beyond our understanding, it's another whole subject for another time, that Hashem knows what will be. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what He issues in the world as a decree. That's called Xero Min Again, this will need a long explanation why we need such things and what it means. But let's take that as a, as a, as a, as a postulate for now. There's a thing called Xero Min That means Hashem decrees in some way what will happen in the world. There could be decrees for good, decrees for bad. Interesting discussion whether they could be changed, cannot be changed, which ones can be changed, which ones can chuva undo. But He issues His instructions to the world through what we call Xerah. What happens when Xerah in a Shemaim, or no Xerah, conflicts with what I want to do to you? What happens when you're walking down the road, and there's no Xerah on you? Mr. A is walking down the road. You interview Hashem. Hashem, how do you feel about Mr. A? He says, he's, he's fine, he's good. You say, Hashem, are you going to kill him today? Hashem says, no. As far as I'm concerned, he has 25 more years to live, he's married, have a family. And while you're talking to Hashem, Mr. B turns the corner and tries to kill A. Now we're in trouble. Because if Hashem has not decreed that A should die, how could possibly could B kill him? If he did, he'd be doing something that Hashem did not plan, instruct, decree. But if you say that's correct, he couldn't kill him, then you're pulling the teeth of the free will of the person who's trying to kill him. Ladies, gentlemen, do you see the problem? One or other has to give. Either he will not have the free will to kill him, you pull the trigger, but the fellow will sneeze, the gun will jam, something will happen, he won't be able to die, because it wasn't decreed on him to die. Which means that, thank you, which means that um, there's no free will to kill someone who wasn't going to die otherwise. Or you'll have to say he could kill him even though he wasn't decreed to die. That's very scary. What happened to Vashgacha that's governing this person's path in the world? That's the problem. Are, are we clear about the problem? Any questions about the question? Okay. Let's take a little detour through some wonderful areas of Torah to try to understand how this works. During the life of the Pischei Tshuva, one of the great commentaries that we have printed in the Shulchan Aruch, look this up yourself, it's very, very worthwhile. Pischei Tshuva, Cheshen Mishpat Yud He brings a very interesting question. This is the question that he received. There was a very learned individual, some major rabbinic personality in his generation, we don't know who it was, who was visiting a commercial exposition, some sort of a fair where people went to buy and sell things, I think it was in Leipzig. And this rabbi found himself in the following very, very interesting dilemma. In that, in that place where the Jews were buying and selling, if there was any, any financial litigation, they used to make a basting. How do you make a basting? You would co-opt three people to be Dayanim on the basting. And then they would hear the case. In fact, even the non-Jews there used to subject themselves to the same arbitration that was well established. On this particular occasion, this rabbi was visiting, and doing some business, I guess, and there was some problem between two Jews, so they made a basting. They chose two local Jews to be on the basting. They couldn't very well ignore him. He was a major rabbinic personality. They put him on the basting. And he writes as follows. I was sitting there with these two judges on the basting, the evidence began to be heard, and it became immediately apparent to me that the two other judges were colluding against the innocent party, had no intention of voting for the truth. They were clearly going to vote in the direction where an injustice would have taken place, and I would be carried along with it. You know that if you're part of a base team, you are subsumed in the majority. The Gemara Sanhedrin says that if I'm part of a base team, and my two friends are sitting with me, and they outvote me, I may not go to you afterwards and say I was on your side but they outvoted me. I'm not even allowed to disclose that. That means that the, the, the ruling comes down as a fiat of the Bastin, as if to say a, a unanimous ruling, I'm subsumed in the majority, and that is what will happen. I'm going to be a party to a miscarriage of justice. I'm going to say the truth, these fellows are lying, and money will change hands in the wrong direction, and I'll be part of that. What can I do? So he thought to himself, I could say I don't know. If you say you don't know, the case is closed. Because you never have an even number of judges. Why well, an American jury has 12 people, I never figured out. But in Jewish law, you may never have an even number of judges. You can never have a hung decision. And therefore, two judges, we close the case or we co-opt others. But this phase of the, judge, of, the justice, of the judgment stops. And therefore, I could say I don't know. 
But he said what bothered him was the fact that to say, I don't know, he would have had to lie. Because he didn't know. Now he asked himself, what is the truth? What is Hashem's truth? Does Hashem want me to say the truth and have a lie result? Or does He want me to say a lie to have the truth result? Isn't that an amazing question? Isn't that an amazing question? Is it not a no result? Is what? Is it not a no result? Because these two people can't say anything. If you don't say, then... But if I say I don't know, I'm no. saying something wrong. Right. There's a din in based in that you, you have to say what your eyes see. But again, again, you have to grasp the problem here. The problem is you'd have to go against. So he said to himself, what is the truth? You know, you're sitting at home, the phone rings, your wife picks it up. From the tone of voice, you know, you realize there's somebody you don't want to speak to. So this is what you do. <laughs> Step out the door, you say, I'm not home. Your wife says, I'm sorry, he's out. Would you say that's a true or a lie? That's a lie. Because the meaning of the question isn't which side of the doorstep your husband's standing on. That's not Emma's. You can't get away with the legalistic technicalities. So the truth in Torah, this is a fascinating subject in its own right. I think Rabbi has done a lot of work on this area. But the truth is a, is a subtle thing. So he racked his brains and he said, ah, he had a solution. The Gemara says that if the Sanhedrin is voting and it's a capital case. Imagine this person here is on trial for his life. You gentlemen, you people, equality is the name of the game, you are all members of the great Sanhedrin. I'm sure you're all duly qualified. And a vote is about to take place about this person's culpability for death. Now, you know that in a capital case in Judaism, we have extreme stringencies to get somebody killed. A simple majority is not good enough. There are all sorts of extreme requirements in order to get a capital conviction. Now, the Sanhedrin sat in a semicircle so they could see each other, <coughs> and they voted from junior to senior. What's the reason for that? Why did they go from junior to senior? They didn't want a junior. Gentlemen, what's wrong with you? The ladies. They didn't want a junior to be influenced by a prior senior vote, and so they went from junior to senior. Do you mind being the junior of the Sanhedrin? I mean, you have to be a major black belt to be on the Sanhedrin. <laughs> And we'll move from junior to senior, and Al Kalinsky will be the all-time 10th Dan black belt head of the generation. He's going to cast the final vote. Now imagine that there is a serious majority to convict, and the person's convicted. There's one proportion of majority to convict, an overwhelming majority to convict, that paradoxically in Jewish law acquits. What proportion is that? 100%. Are you going to slow? Or are you... <laughs> Are you, are you just gentlemen? <laughs> it's all about equality. Okay, right. So if the, if the Sanhedrin votes unanimously that he's guilty, he's acquitted. The Rambam says it's a murder case. He's not freed. But he's not given one of the four death sentences of the Torah. And if it's not a murder case, he's freed. They all say he's guilty, he's free. Why? This is not discussion today. But one suggestion is because we're concerned that if no one argued in his favor... They didn't examine the case well enough. Somebody's got to try to defend him. You, you people are probably too young to know. But many years ago, in the era when movies were occasionally kosher, <laughs> there was a movie called Twelve Angry Men. It is a marvelous piece of drama. I highly recommend you get the, the screenplay. There's actually a, a stage, the, the script. It's a fantastic play about... And 100% kosher. There's not a woman in the whole, in the whole thing. Um, <coughs> The, um, <laughs> the, the actor was Henry Fonda and took uh, for 1953. This scenario is a jury room in which 12 men walk in, having just heard a trial in which a young fellow was seen to have killed his father. Not only that, he threatened to kill him, and then he was seen to kill him. Witnesses testified. The 12 men walk in, and 11 of them, without any hesitation, vote guilty immediately. And one fellow thinks there's room for doubt. And as the drama unfolds, he shows them. It's a very, very good piece of drama. And you should definitely, definitely take a look at that. But we need someone to defend him. And therefore, if they all vote guilty, he's acquitted. Now watch, watch what happens. Imagine the person's on trial, and the voting goes like this. Guilty, guilty, death, execute, guilty, guilty. And it finally ends up with a Muflash of the great authority of the generation, the senior member, and he knows the man's guilty. Now what does he say? If he says guilty, he acquits a murderer. If he says innocent, he'll have him convicted, which is the truth. 
So should he say he's innocent? Should he say guilty as he sees and a travesty of justice will take place? Or should he say he's innocent to have him killed, which is correct? What would you say? Guilty. <laughs> so the, the, the Farshim bring down, the police can bring down, he has to say guilty. According to what his eyes see. The man walks free, that's Hashem's problem. Oh, so I know what to do. Here's our precedent. I found the Gemara. If I'm sitting with two liars who are going to vote the wrong way, I say the truth. You see, the rabbi's not happy. Says the Pisgah Tshuva, wrong. These are not parallel cases. Look it up. It's fascinating the way he puts it. And we'll take a little tour through the question of free will and Ashkocha and hopefully circle back and try to understand how this works. So let's talk about the subject of my free will affecting you, <coughs> and then we'll try to see if we can understand this dilemma. Again, the classic problem is, can I ever affect anyone else? And although this isn't discussed in our, in our sources, it probably applies to helping people as well. <coughs> can I ever help someone when that's not in the dispensation? I give somebody money. I make a serious effort and I, and I, and I sacrifice money. I give stock to somebody to help them. Is the correct interpretation, I made a difference to their life? Or is the correct consideration, they must have deserved it? They wouldn't have won the premium bonds. They would have, which aunt would have died? Right? I get the mitzvah, there's no question about it. But I never changed their life. Or is the correct interpretation, I made a difference to them. That might not have happened otherwise. And conversely, if somebody kills someone else, is the correct interpretation, they were going to die then anyway? Sure, he's guilty. No question about it. He caused the death. He killed the person. No question about it. But is the pshat that it would have happened anyway? Or is it possibly something that he could have done that would not have happened anyway? And he not only is guilty, he actually caused the result. There's a massive difference. If you take the first view, when somebody kills somebody else and the family are upset, the murderer can say to the family, what do you want from me? If your father died, he was going to die anyway. I pulled the trigger. I'm an, I'm an answer for that. But I never did anything to your family that wouldn't have happened. Otherwise, your problem's with God, not with me. You hear that? Always the correct interpretation. You caused it. You know, we certainly... Uh, if you research this subject in the modern world, most people, most religious people, will tell you there's clearly only one interpretation. And that is Hashkocha never moves. If somebody killed someone else, the only possible interpretation is they were going to die anyway. You're guilty, there's no question about it. But they were going to die anyway. And I think that's wrong. I think that's wrong. Even though that's the common understanding today, I don't think we have any information that say that. I wrote a book about this, you can look it up. Do you have it in Hebrew? <coughs> so, this, this book was published recently in Hebrew. If someone contacts me, I'm happy to send you a copy. <coughs> My son lives in Hanoff, he can sell you a copy, you can get a special discount. And um, what the book is, a book about free will, but the second half of the book, it has all the sources written out in full. So you can actually, you don't have to take it from me, you can actually, and some are hard to find, Rabbi Kreskas and things that are not so easy to find. There you can look in the second half of the book, you can actually look through all the Makaris. So, I don't think we have anyone who says that, um, that takes that line, and many who say the opposite, as I'll try to, try to explain. Incidentally, we don't relate to the world that way. You know, imagine you get in your car, right? And uh, you pull out and some idiot goes straight into you and makes a big dent in your car. You get out and start yelling and screaming. Well, of course, you Chappelle students, you'd get out and say, good morning. <laughs> <laughs> you say, oh, look what you've done to my car. The fellow says, are you religious Jew, aren't you? You say, yes. He says, well, you must believe you had it coming. <laughs> no, the world doesn't look that way to us. What is happening in depth? So, one interpretation is the person pulled the trigger, the other person died, that was going to happen anyway. Very neat, convenient, very reassuring if you're the victim, but very, very problematic in the notion of free will, because you're pulling the teeth of free will. That means I never really make a difference in the world to somebody else. That's not, that's not good. That's not good. The alternative is, alternative is, you could do something to someone that might not have happened otherwise, which is very scary if you're the recipient. That means that people are dangerous. But it's very empowering if you're the agent of free will. I think that's the correct position. Let me try to give you some sources for this. And I hope you'll find this challenging and instructive. Let me give you a succinct, very elegant and succinct proof, and then I'll tell you the best known and formal one. I heard this brief and succinct proof from Rav Yaakov Weinberg. I had a five-minute walk with him once. 
And so I asked him this question. In five, five minutes, this is what you'd explain to someone. We say, Vayomer David el God. David said to the Navi God, Niplan Abiyad Hashem, let us fall into Hashem's hand, Kirabim Rachamav, because His mercy is very, very great. Yad Adam Alepola, let me not fall into human hand. That is very, very revealing. David Amalekh is facing an ordeal. The, the incident that happened was that Hashem said to David, you and your people have sinned and you need suffering. I'm going to give you a choice of suffering. Very interesting. Hashem offers David a choice of suffering. Do you want an epidemic? Do you want a war? Do you want famine? By the way, for homework, try to think about why would Hashem give an option of which sufferings he wants. I mean, where's that coming from? And where's the precedent for that? Where else do we find that? But that's what happened. David thought about it, and he chose disease. Mephoshim, very interesting, go into what were the calculations he made on why he wanted that form of suffering as opposed to each of the other two in particular. But the reason that we're focusing on here is, Hashem wanted a disease because the disease comes from Hashem. He did not want war because war is waged by human free will. Meaning, Kirabim Rachamav, Hashem, your mercy is great, but there's no trusting a Philistine soldier. That is very revealing. If you believe that you only get what's coming to you, every bullet has a name on. Every Philistine sword has a name on. Flip a coin! What's the difference? You're not going to get what you don't deserve. What's the difference if it's a virus or a bacterium or a Philistine soldier? Hashem's not going to allow you to suffer more than you deserve. No, that's what David said. He said, I want to fall into your hands, Hashem, because I can rely on your mercy. But there's no trusting a Philistine soldier, meaning he could hurt me worse than you would have. That's a very telling source that demonstrates that human beings can do worse than non-human agencies. I don't know how you would rebut this, this particular proof. So that is a very clear and elegant demonstration. The most classic proof for this is clearly the Orachim. But if you look it up, you'll notice it's not only the Orachim. The Al-Sheikh says the same thing, the Malbid says the same thing, the Nitziv says exactly the same thing, and it's a Zohar. Interesting, the Orachim doesn't quote the Zohar, but it's line for line, Right? Except that the Zohar doesn't mention Bechira. doesn't use the word. But look it up and you'll see it goes all the way back to the Zohar. And here's what the Orachim says. And please, pay close attention. This is the classic source. And if you haven't understood this, you've not understood the subject in a professional fashion. Orachim says, when the brothers saw Joseph approaching, Yosef was approaching the brothers, they said, Hine, behold, Baala Chalomes, this dreamer of dreamers approaches, let's kill him, Nargeu, the Nire Mayim Chalomisav, let's kill him and see what become of his, comes of his dreams. They were not being childishly sarcastic. Every word in Torah has specific meaning, and here's what they meant. This dreamer of dreams, we understand that his dreams are faked and false. He never had these dreams, he's an imposter. He threatens the future of the family and the Jewish people, a cosmic threat, and therefore he has to die. Now, if we kill him, can we be sure that we're correct? Can humans ever be sure that the justice is, is accurate? No. But in this case, we can. Because he dreamed. Here's Joseph. He's born here, and here he's 17 years old. Here he has dreams that somewhere in the future will bow down to him. And he claims they're prophetic. We claim it's a lie. Well, if we kill him now, there ain't going to be a future in which he's going to bow down to us because he's dead. Which means not only will justice be done, but it will immediately be seen to be done. We can't go wrong. Is this clear? You get it? So that not only can we act, even murderously, as soon as he dies, it's patently obvious that the dreams must have been fake because there's no future in which we have without him. And therefore... Because he's an imposter. He's threatening them. He's threatening them. He, was not, he was a redef on them. And this is not our subject today. If he's a fake prophet, trying to pull one over on them about the future of the Jewish people, asserting his own superiority, taking the whole Jewish future offline, he deserves to die. Again, it's not our subject today. Take that from me. So Reuven stepped forward and he said, Gentlemen, my brothers, you're making a mistake. You're making a very big mistake. I'm telling you, I'll suggest to you that it's possible that his dreams were true. They were accurate prophetic dreams. But you step in with your free will. Hashem created the world for free will. He's not going to block that. He's going to allow him to die even though the dreams were true. What happens to the prophecies? The big computer will work it out and there'll be different interpretations. We'll, we'll deal with that. And Farshim deal with that, by the way. But it's not our subject again now. He, if you remind me, we have to talk about that. But you will be able to kill him because the hand of human free will is so mighty that Hashem will not withhold it. And because you raise your hand against him, he'll die. You'll falsely conclude that you were right, but actually you'll be making a tragic error. So the brother said, what do we do? 
So Reuben said, don't touch him. Put him in this pit of snakes and scorpions. Now snakes, snakes, snakes and scorpions are dangerous, but they're not human. The Maral, by the way, says the pit was not full of snakes and scorpions. Because if you throw someone onto a pile of snakes and scorpions and they kill him, that's called murder. If you hold someone's head underwater and you say, I didn't kill him, it was just a lack of oxygen. <laughs> no. In Sanhedrin, the Yad Rama goes into great detail about how proximate your action has to be to be considered murderous. So the Maral says the pit was not full, but it had enough snakes and scorpions to be a very dangerous place. What was Reuben's thinking? No self-respecting scorpion is going to touch you unless he has a divine decree to do so, because he's not human. And therefore, don't touch him. If humans touch him, all bets are off. Leave it to something that doesn't have free will, and that will be a, dev- a test. And the POSIC, of course, in, when you want to... St- any, if there's one thing you should get deeply ingrained into in your Shiva experience, it is that nothing moves in Torah without a source. And nothing moves in Torah without a POSIC, and the POSIC has to be accurate and perfect. They're not fitting stuff in with a crowbar. Nothing moves in Torah without a source. So it says the Arachayim, it says in Pasuk, Vayatzilehu miyadam. Yeruven saved him from their hand. He didn't save him from his fate. He saved him miyad habachiri, from the hand of human free will. Is this clear? And therefore, this is a wonderful source, a classic source, and all Amalfor should bring it. And no one says the Arachayim's wrong. You will not find anybody until the last 50 years. Who, uh, nobody says Arachayim's wrong. You know, we're not afraid of Machlekes in Torah, right? And this is radical. They should have dismembered him. Nobody says he's wrong. This is the classic source for showing that human, the hand of human free will is much more powerful, powerful enough to distort or divert even a, in the Rahim's case, lack of divine decree. Listen to his language. Efshar laharoik, it's possible to kill somebody. You could kill some, I'm not talking about killing somebody who is decreed. I'm not talking about somebody's decree not to die. I'm talking about somebody who has no decree to die. An open... Yeah. Oh, uh, does this only apply to killing someone, or is this also with other... Everything. Uh, everything. Just the most extreme example. Okay. doesn't get worse than this. But it's everything. A kind word that helps somebody. Whatever it is. Yeah. What about accidents? What about accidents? A human... A human if it's a complete human accident, it comes from God completely. There's the intermediate zone where there's negligent accident. And that's halfway. But a complete accident, you're driving down the road completely responsibly, then somebody runs out and get hurt. Zero responsibility. There's this Kabbalistic calculation, why did God put you in the situation to be the agent of that harm? But it's not our subject today. Do you mind? Could you? Could you I'm, I'm amazed to see and I'm thrilled that you're so engaged. Wait, you, give me a moment to, to, feel this, to feel this through. That's the classic source. There are many, many other sources. We don't have time today to go through all of them. I'll just sh- sh- share with you a couple of beautiful classics. Here's one that the Netziv point... The, actually, the Orochayim gives you another beautiful example. We just read the Pansha in which Yehuda approached Yosef. Right? And then there was a showdown and Yosef revealed himself. Listen to this Orochayim. At the end of the week, last week's Pasha, the Pasha before, Yehuda approaches Yosef. They've been found guilty. The cup has been found in Binyamin's sack. The brothers are crestfallen and devastated. They stand in front of Joseph, unknowing, not knowing that he understands what they're saying. And they say, this is it. We are guilty. Hashem is punishing us because of what we did. We sold our brother. Our sin has been found out. There's no hope for us. And he turns to Yosef and he says, we are your slaves. There's nothing we can do. God has found us guilty. That's what he says. Totally shattered, reconciliatory, conciliatory. That's what he says. Yosef says to them, one brief sentence, I don't want you, you guys can go home. You have a problem with your God, you deal with that. That's not my problem. Your guilt for whatever you've done in the past is not my issue. I just want Binyamin. He stole the cup, I want him. The next pasuk, the same breath, Yehuda says, and if you don't do what I'm telling you, I'm going to kill you. I'll kill you, I'll kill your Pharaoh, I'll destroy the whole country, I'll wipe you all out. Orochan says, what's going on? In the same breath. He, he first speaks in a way that he's totally defeated. One sentence later, he's threatening to kill them all. What happened? Says the Rachel. Yehuda understood that the brothers are being held accountable for the clear sin that they committed of selling their brother. Hashem is visiting this upon them, and if it's Hashem, there's nothing you can do. The fact that it's coming through a human agent is irrelevant. This is a decree in Hashemayim. If Hashem has decreed that we are guilty and we are to suffer, there's nothing we can do. We have to do chuvah. This Egyptian is irrelevant. We sold our brother. Then Joseph says to them, you can all go, I want him. Yehuda says, you're letting us go? You only want to keep the one who's clearly not guilty? 
He was not involved in the sale of his brother. This is not Mirashamayim. This is you. This is your malicious, independent, unilateral, human free will. You are killed. Is this clear? Beautiful. In other words, as long as it's a Xerim Mirashamayim, there's no problem, no, no hope dealing with a human being. He's only the, the staff in the hand right, of a divine dispensation. But as soon as he, it may, becomes obvious that this is not because of that, we're all free, he, then I can deal with you, because this is possibly your own personal malicious issue, and that is subject to my free will impinging on you as well. Very beautiful. The, um, there are countless sources for this. Then it brings another one. Here, here, here's what he says. When King Darius was being served by Daniel, Daniel was an advisor in the king's court. And he was an, a, an advisor, he was a counselor, he was virtually worshipped by the king. The non-Jewish courtiers were guilty of that, were jealous of Daniel. So they said to the king, this Jew is a traitor. So the king said, no, he's not, he's a holy man, like his compatriots, Hananiah, Mishael, and Nazaria. And he is a holy man, and I trust him. But they, they, they forced the king, they forced his hand. So he said, here's what I'll do. I will show you that he's a righteous individual. I will throw him into a pit of hungry lions... And he will be protected by divine protection, like his friends were saved in the fire. If you write that he's a traitor, he'll be, dis- he'll be killed. So let's make a test. The king was confident enough that Daniel was holy enough to be saved miraculously from hungry lions. So here's what he did. He starved the lions till they were ravenous. He threw Daniel into the den of the lions. And the next passage says he put a big stone over the, over the mouth of the pit where the lions were. Because, says the passage, he was afraid that the jealous courtiers would come up to the pit, kill him with their spears or arrows, and then say the lions killed him. So he had to protect him from them. He's not concerned about hungry lions. Hungry lions, no problem, Daniel's going to be saved. But human beings, all better off. This is a human being who's holy enough to be saved miraculously. But against human beings, ah. And therefore he protects him from the humans, right? And it seems says this. And the Torah is full of these examples. I'll give you one more and that is that the, uh, the Ramban. You know, there's a very famous question about what you begin in the book of Shmois, the beginning of the servitude of the Jewish people in Egypt. A very famous question is, why were the Egyptians punished if they were fulfilling a divine decree? You know, when the Ramban talks about free will in the laws of Chiro, in the fifth chapter, he deals with the classic problem of how there can be free will if Hashem knows in advance what you're going to do. In the sixth chapter, he introduces a novel angle on that question. What happens if it's not divine foreknowledge, but it's a divine announcement? A prophet announces in the world. Humans know what's going to be. One problem, is this clear? One problem is when Hashem knows what's going to be, how do you have free will? But when Hashem announces in the world, He tells Avram Avinu hundreds of years before they're going to be enslaved. Now there's clearly no option. What Hashem knows, you don't know. So, who knows? But here He's announced it in the world. Interesting debate in the Mephashim. Is this another angle on the same question? Is it a new question? But that's the question. Here the Jewish people are predicted that they will be enslaved in Egypt. How can you hold the Egyptians accountable? Mephoshim say they should be rewarded, the Egyptians. All they're doing is fulfilling it. Egyptians say, Hashem, what do you want from us? You predicted and evidently needed in some way that the Jews would be enslaved. We did it. Reward us. You hear the question? There are many answers to this, but listen to the Ramban. Hashem did not punish the Egyptians for enslaving the Jewish people, because that was decreed. He punished them for hurting the Jewish people more than was decreed. What do you see? You could hurt someone more than God would have. What do you need to make an assertion like this? What do you need to say something like this? Proof. What kind of proof? A source. What kind of source? A pasuk. So it says, Hema, the pasuk says, Hashem says, I calculated a certain amount, Hema Azru and they added evil. In other words, the Torah is clearly telling you, Hashem is saying, they did to the Jews more than I wanted. By the way, Ramban and others go on to say, they were also punished for the minimum amount as well, because the intention was wrong. They weren't fulfilling divine decrees. They were doing it because it suited them. That's another issue. But you see clearly from this that you could, evidently you could hurt somebody more than Hashem would have. Is, is this clear? And again, there are countless sources that go in this direction, and I'm not aware of any that don't. There are one or two sources that seem to suggest differently. 
superficially, but they are clearly to be understood, or easily understood in this way. Now is not the time to go into them. You look in my book, there's a wonderful essay there by Rav Govitz from Gated, in which he specifically tackles all those recent commentaries who suggest that this is not right, and shows us how to correctly understand it. Yaakov Hillel, should be well, has also a wonderful piece talking, of course, he's writing in defense of the great Orachim. Don't mess with my Sfaradi greats. <laughs> right? A fantastic piece about how the Orachim is justified and many, many surrounding issues. And I printed that piece in, in the book as well and you can, you can look it up. So that is the, I think, the correct, correct approach. When I discussed with Rav Moshe Shabir, he said, Zepashutkach. This is not debatable. Zepashutkach. It's, it's, it's clearly the way to understand things. No? The rabbi received, I think Rav Olba has a letter where he says that the Gaon didn't go like this. Just, I, think I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that. Maybe you could show that to me. Maybe you could show that to me. The Gaon is equivocal on this matter. He doesn't say clearly either way. And if you take a look at my... Oh, 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 so that is brought, and Rav Gervitz shows how correctly to understand that. If you pay attention for the next few minutes, I'll try to, try to cover that as well. But, um, by the way, even if you could... They said the Chavetz Chaim said... People think the Chavetz Chaim said, but the Chavetz Chaim is, is, is uh, Eino Mishnah in the face of all of these that I've, that I've said. And by the way, if you understand the Chavetz Chaim correctly, you see, when you put a person in a situation of danger, that wouldn't have happened otherwise. In that situation, Xera is issued. Nothing happens without Shem's agreement or approval or, or din. Again, when a person pulls the trigger, you can put a person, here's the correct way to say it, you can put a person in a situation of danger that would not, not have happened otherwise. But in that situation, the books are opened and a calculation is made. The person might be saved miraculously. If he deserves it, he might not. Nothing happens at random. All, your, all the Rochaim is saying, a person who has no gzera on them, it's an open question, they're an open book at this point, there is such a dispensation. In such circumstances, and only in such, you could put a person in danger. In that situation, there needs to be a judgment made. Nothing happens without Hashem's acquiescence. Let me just add one more dimension, if I may, and then we'll come back to the Pizchachimah. We are not saying that you could do anything to anyone under all circumstances. That's a misunderstanding. It's not carte blanche, you can do anything to anybody. No, by no means. There's a very limited zone of the opportunity to affect someone in a way that wouldn't have happened. And here are the variables. Number one, the actor must be a Baal Bakhira. We're not talking about a young Arab teenager with a bum, bum on his back that they send into a bus. This person has to be a Baal Bechira. The Shvatim, big enough people to affect the destiny of the world. Secondly, the victim must be, first of all, al Sheikh says an individual, not a mass attack. It must be a targeted individual. Not only that, the individual being attacked must lack schus. This is a fundamental point. The person must lack protective merit. The Baal Bechira can only affect someone else to the extent that they're honorable. <coughs> if the person has enough merit, they will be untouchable. The extreme case is what we call Sadiq Omu. Somebody who has so much merit that no one can touch them. And if anything does happen to them, it definitely was decreed. The classic historical case is Mordechai. Mordechai stood, sat, where Haman was coming past, and deliberately worked him into an anti-Semitic frenzy, designing a plan in which Haman would self-destruct. Because he knew he couldn't touch him. Why is not, again, today's subject? It's from Binyamin, uh, a long story. By the way, that's a very dangerous game. That's a very dangerous game to take the most powerful man in the world, almost, and, and, and drive him into a... The reason it's dangerous is because there's a possible Eov that says, Eretz Nitna Beyad Russia. The world is controlled by the wicked, in case you hadn't noticed. <laughs> the world is not being run by benevolent people who... The world is being run by people who will kill you for less than a vote. There's no question about it. That's why as Jews in a post-prophetic era, we walk between the raindrops. We don't meet the evil in a full frontal belligerent attack. And I hope for that. Right? We use strategy. So therefore, just to confront a wicked person like that and, 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 and drive him is ridiculous. But Mordechai knew he could not be touched. So if you have full house chus, nobody. The concern with Yosef was maybe he was vulnerable. Not deserved to die, but maybe he done something that opened a vulnerability. And then human free will could, could move in. Is that clear? And by the way, it doesn't have to be your schus. It could be your wife's. Maybe A tries to kill B, and B doesn't deserve to be saved. But his wife doesn't deserve to be a widow. That's good enough. This is why some people do not take out life insurance. Now, you should definitely take out life insurance. It's a very good idea. Many senior rabbis recommend it highly. 
But some people make this calculation. Life insurance. Mr. A is walking down the street. He's got no life insurance. B tries to kill him. Hashem looks down and says, I can't let him die. He's, he brings home the bacon. Oh, whatever he... <laughs> whatever he's home. His wife needs him. I can't allow him to die. I'll save him. But if Mr. A is walking down the street with a hundred million dollar life insurance policy and B tries to kill him, Hashem looks down and says, your wife's okay. <laughs> with some husbands, the wife's probably better off. But anyway, <laughs> the point is that... The point is that... Therefore, don't take out life insurance. In fact, the strategy you should adopt is make yourself indispensable to so many poor families who depend on you that when somebody tries to take you out, Hashem's going to look down and say, you know what, it's just too complicated. <laughs> it's not the highest motivation for stock, but it's, but it's kosher, right? So it has to be this course. Next point is this does not apply to masses. When there's a Holocaust type situation or a mass destruction or a pandemic, it does not discern between good and bad. Another principle that needs to be discussed. When Hashem gives permission to the destroyer, He no longer discerns between the righteous and the, the wicked. That's another whole issue. Number four, wars do not include it. Wars have a whole different dispensation. And finally, a king or a president or a prime minister has no free will at all. In Perikhaf Aleph, in Mishle, Posuk Aleph, Lev Melech B'Yad Hashem. Lufashim always quoted as Lev Melochim B'Sari B'Yad Hashem. But the Pasuk says Lev Melech B'Yad Hashem. The heart of a king is Hashem's head. King means prime minister, president, person of Meir. Moshe Shapiro used to say, anybody in charge or influential over masses. Nobody has the free will to divert the course of history. And therefore the heart of a king is in Hashem's head. This is a very challenging proposition. I'm not going to go into it now. I recommend you think about this a lot. What do you mean a king's in Hashem's head? Paroi had his free will taken away after misusing his free will. But he was king before. Where, where, was, the, where was the heart of Pharaoh in Hashem's hand more five plagues later than, than before? What does this mean? And are kings not responsible for what they do? <coughs> what does this mean? This is a very, very deep and challenging subject. And not for now to, to go into it. But all those are modifying or reducing the effect of Right? It's only in certain limited circumstances where there's no xero on someone that somebody could impinge on them in a way that might not have happened. And in that situation, there'll have to be a decision made. You know, the Gemara says, if you put yourself in a dangerous situation, the books are opened. You must say, don't put yourself in danger. Don't walk under a leaning wall, because when you do that, you're in danger. The books are opened in the higher world, and Hashem judges. Do you deserve to be saved? What we're saying today is you could put someone else in that situation in which the books will be opened. So far, so good. Let's come... Yeah. How did the last three things you mentioned, like war, pandemic, kings, how did the, the jive with the King David story about how that shows free will? Because isn't he a king and then he's choosing... Great question. Great. That's a great question. That's part of our problem. Certainly kings have, have responsibility. They certainly make decisions. And by the way, it only applies in the zone of their decisions affecting the people, not in their private lives at all. Only as kings... And David made a decision as a king. Great question. That's part of the challenge of this subject. Let me just close, circle back to the... Um, Do I have a few more minutes? The, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's what I mean. Do I have a few more minutes? Um, the Chinuch appears to contradict himself on this point. In the Reshmen, Reshmen Aleph, Reshmen Beis, the Chinuch says, the Chinuch, as you know, classic work on the mitzvahs, going back 800 years. The Chinuch says that you're not allowed to take revenge against someone. Why not? Because revenge means you think the person did it to you. It's like a dog who bites, a man hits a dog with a stick, the dog turns around and bites the stick, because it's a dog. It doesn't realize there's a hand that wheels the stick. If someone hurts you, don't take revenge, because you're misplacing. Yeah, you know, if somebody hurts you, realize it came from Hashem. Whoa, this sounds like it threatens our thesis, doesn't it? Yes, no? Okay. He clearly does not mean that. And now, to go through the text and the subtleties of the example that he gives of how it works, I don't have time to do now, but look it up. But I'll tell you where it's apparent that he cannot think this way. Because in Tav Kuf Chaf Dalit, where he talks about Edim Zomimin, he implies exactly the opposite. This is Rav Moshe Shapir again, and listen to the beauty of this construction. You know there's a mitzvah of Hazama. I'm sure you know that. If a person, again, is on trial for his life, for example, two witnesses testify against him, two witnesses defend him, case closed. But if two witnesses say that he killed, and two other witnesses say, we don't know about the murder, but you couldn't have seen it. You were with us in Tel Aviv that day, at that time. 
You were not present at the time. Again, they don't impugn the, 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 the event, only the veracity of the witnesses. That's a unique construction. And in that case, the Torah has two apparently quirky rules. One is that we believe the second pair of witnesses are not the first. That's a wonderful homework exercise. Why? Why do we conclude they're framing him rather than that they're framing them? And secondly, even more apparently bizarre, we only do to the witnesses, because the law of the Torah is, we do to these witnesses what they tried to do to the victim. If they wanted to make him pay money, they pay money. They wanted to get him killed, they get killed. We only do this to them if they were not successful. Are you familiar with this law? So if they testified and this person was not killed, we save him in time, they get killed. But if they testify and the person was killed, dead, and then we discover they're liars, no problem, they're scot-free. What is going on? They try to kill someone and fortunately fail, they get killed. They try to kill someone falsely and kill him, no problem. You hear the problem, you hear the, the challenge. So the Maral deals with this and their famous Ramban, also famous answers. Listen to what the Chinook says. He says, I will give you a partial explanation. Kitsas time. I'll give you a partial, listen, pay close attention. I will give you a partial explanation for this law. He says, if two witnesses testify that somebody killed, and the best in rules that he, he's guilty and he gets killed, you know why we, we do nothing to these people? Because if he got killed, he must have had it coming. There could not be any miscarriage of justice in this circumstance. The best in killed somebody... What do you want from these people? He died. Must have been right. Does this sound like it's good for us or not good? Then he adds these words. He says the reason that if they killed someone, he must have had it coming is because this is a Sanhedrin. And Elohim Nitzah Ba'adas Kael. Hashem sits with the judges and guarantees, the Rambam says, the only reason humans can ever administer justice is because Hashem guarantees it. Hashem sits with the base in the Sanhedrin and guarantees the output. By the way, not necessarily committed that crime, but he needed to die at that point. And therefore, Elohim Nitzav, Hashem is sitting with the base in and guaranteeing the output. Simple diuk. That's only because it's a base in. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to quote the Pasuk. If he meant that everybody always gets what's coming to them, then it always happens. He doesn't say that. He says, the reason this person is killed because Elohim Nitzav. Hashem guaranteed it. Simple diuk. If it's not a based in, it's Mr. A acting unilaterally on the street, then he could kill someone. You see it? It's a simple one-step diuk. And therefore, clearly the, the Chinuch is holding that in certain circumstances, your hands are tied. That's because the Sanhedrin, the based in, Hashem guarantees it. But if it's not that, then the open field. Says Piskei Tshuva, we'll close with this. He says, if you're sitting in a Sanhedrin, and you have to cast the last vote, and you know he's guilty, and you say it, no problem, it's Hashem's business, you're following the law, this is Sanhedrin, Hashem's guaranteeing it. But you're sitting with two jokers, two liars, and there's no basting. Yeah, no, I can meet up with these guys. Just so you don't know. Anyway, thank you very much for this opportunity, and... Um, if you throw someone onto a pile of guaranteed death, right. that's approximate cause. You can't claim it was animals. So why in the case with um, Daniel being thrown by Baryabish, right, yeah. into, the, into the den of the Holy Lions yeah. was not... Great question. So here's the answer. The Zoras puts it like this. Yeah, the, que yeah, yeah, yeah. the question was, if you throw someone onto a pile of snakes, this is a good question. If you throw someone to a pile of snakes and scorpions, then you consider to have killed him. <clears throat> That's your act. But when Darius threw Daniel into the lion's den, he's throwing him into a situation of guaranteed death as well. Why isn't that a human action? You hear the question? Would you like to venture an answer? <laughs> oh, that's nice. First of all, only, okay, that only applies to a king's political decisions. Okay, this may be, but I... Another attempt? Anyone? No, 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 no. His question is: If you throw someone onto a pit that is full of snakes and scorpions, right. you're guilty. Right, so, so why? This is two lions. It's like it's who said it was two? Excuse me. Who said two? Oh, I thought it was this was guaranteed. Had you, you or I been there, we would have been shredded. 
Okay, no question, yeah? Daniel was a Tzarekamor. Well, that's... He that's, needed Chuyos. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's what the Zohar says. The king was saying that Daniel is holy enough to be protected miraculously. That was the whole point. Miraculously. But even then, not from human beings. And he says that clearly. That uh, the Zohar puts it... This is the language of the Zohar. You need more schus to be pre- protected against humans than non-humans. Against humans, you would need super miraculous intervention. Whereas against non-humans, mere ordinary miracles would be good enough if you're on that level. Yes, any other questions? Yes. So, uh, Rob said that uh, when it comes to masses or like nations of people, it's, there's no free will. It's like Yad Hashem. So how can well, there's no apparent free will. In other words, how the mass dispensation occurs, we cannot see a discerning between the righteous. They're not even less than possibly in other circumstances. So then how Much can, more hidden. So how can the torment be with us to hate Amalek and remember what Amalek did to us? Yeah. Again, what's the problem? This is a nation that, you mean, they acted as a nation against us was not their free will? Yeah. So this is a wonderful question also, and it's approached in different ways by different people. I'll tell you what the Rambam says. The Rambam says that when the Egyptians were held accountable for torturing the Jewish people, I gave you other answers today. His answer is this, and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. The Rambam says the reason the Egyptians were held accountable was because although there was a decree on the Egyptians, there was no decree on individual Egyptians. That means you'll be enslaved in a foreign land, but that Ahmud and Mahmud and whatever his name is is going to hurt your child, that was not decreed. So each individual Egyptian stepped forward to be wicked, that is his responsibility. He should have stepped back and said, let others do it. The rivet attacks the Rambam mercy, mercilessly and says, but if no one would have done it, it wouldn't have happened. Okay, problem. <laughs> so that's one way to approach your question. Any other? Yeah. <clears throat> to what extent do we have the responsibility to stop injustices in the world if we see it as a... I'm not sure what your question is. There's a clear obligation to stop injustice. We learned, among others from Moshe, interfering with Jews and non-Jews, both of those. Right? When, when, when um, he interferes with an Egyptian killing a Jew, interferes with non-Jewish shepherds misbehaving. So you see that there's clearly, a, when, when you are able to, to step in and modify the world around you, you have the obligation to do that, to remove obstacles from people's path, etc. To teach those principles as well. Now, each situation needs to be read carefully. Do you have to endanger your life for that, under what circumstances, but there's an obligation to do that? Yes, any, yes please. Uh, yeah. Last question. Uh, what's, the, what's such a big difference between like being saved miraculously from animals and from humans? Meaning, okay, maybe the animals don't attack, but if humans attack, yeah. and that person has enough merit, why can't just Hashem... Oh, Hashem certainly can. Let's be clear. So what's such the, what's the to be saved from an animal, Hashem can do. To save you from a human, He certainly can do. No, no question. But you need more merit to be protected against a human, because Hashem is more hesitant to interfere with humans' free will. He doesn't want to take away that person's free will. Do you understand? This person the moves... Was to act, not to be, not to be healed or saved. Like that, the free that's the first, the bullet. That's the first view. We don't accept that view. The second view is you could shoot the bullet even if it wouldn't have happened otherwise. That's how powerful your free will is. Hashem doesn't want to interfere with it. He'll only interfere if it's necessary. If your wife doesn't deserve to, to be a widow. This person has enough schools. But Hashem's going to... That's a last resort. Do you understand? Hashem created the world for you to be independent of Him. That's your greatness. That's called Salaman Okim. He's not going to hold back your free will unless it's absolutely necessary. That's the axiom of which the world is built.